as you're turning to the book of First Samuel, just want to remind everyone that homemade ice cream has a way of making anyone that may think they're reticent in the social skills area, all of a sudden you become phenomenal. It's a great time of fellowship, of catching up and getting to know one another, so we hope everyone, everyone can come this evening, 7 o'clock. In chapter 23 of 1 Samuel, David and his men narrowly escaped being captured by Saul because of the Lord's sovereign providence. Saul was abruptly called away from pursuing David because of more Philistine raids upon the land. Another irony that God would use the enemies of the people of Israel to deliver his chosen king from certain death. We should not miss that. David immediately changed locations then, going east from the wilderness of Maon to the strongholds of Engedi, known for a perennial spring located several hundred feet up a large cliff on the western shore of the Dead Sea. Marty and I were fortunate to go there back in 2000. It's quite a climb, but you come from one of the harshest areas in, the, in Israel onto this beautiful oasis, flowing water in abundance, green, and it is really, really something. Marty reminded me, which I needed, that we also saw an ibex there. Ibex is a wild goat. Uh, Nubian ibex is what's known there in, in Israel and a lot of countries in the, in the Middle East. It's mount, it lives in mountainous areas. And the male has um, extremely interesting horns or antlers. Horns, I think, is what you call them. They come out in a V and curve back. So this morning, I was trying to remember whether this was a male with big horns or a female that hers are just a little shorter, about that big. And you know, I couldn't remember. Imagine that. So I asked Marty. She couldn't remember either, but she said we might have a picture somewhere. So you know what I'll be doing this afternoon. With no mention at all of how Saul fared, in his response to the Philistine attacks. There's nothing in this text as we begin chapter 24 about what happened, whether they were successful or not. Probably, but we don't know that for sure. Chapter 24 begins with Saul again focusing on finding David with 3,000 chosen men. This is the cream of the crop as far as soldiers go. Now, if anyone is inclined with math at all, you realize that that's five times as many men as David had at this point. We are immediately brought here in this text into a scene in which David must face a very tough test from the Lord. If you are able, would you please stand and read 1 Samuel 24 verses 1 through 7 from the English Standard Version. 
1 Samuel 24, verses 1 through 7. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in the front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now you probably realize that, at least recently, um, just covering the first seven verses may seem a little short. I think you'll see why as we get into this. And what comes after this is an incredible study in what David proclaims. So this morning we're just going through this, the first seven verses and concentrating on something that will immediately become apparent to you as being very, very practical. But this is important because we learn so much about this man's heart, what made him tick, what kind of leader he was, but mainly, especially as we get into what he says next week, we'll see that all of that is true because of who God is and what God called him to do. While Saul is taking care of business in this cave, he is completely clueless about a great debate that is raging between David and his men farther back in this cave. This is really a great spiritual debate about the will of God in David's life. David's men think that they understand this strange circumstance as evidence of God's provision. Verse 4 says, And the men of David said to him, You notice what he, how this starts off? Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Now what would we say? We would probably say something like, God has opened the door, David. And meant for him to act and take advantage of this circumstance. 
So encouraged by his men then, David sneaks up behind Saul and cut off a corner of his robe, but he left Saul alone. And even in doing this, his conscience started going off with warning signals. Because in verse 5, describes this as, and afterward David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Then in verse 6 we read, He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So immediately, aren't you asking, what is going on here? Why was David's conscience in alarm mode? And why was David's heart stricken over this merciful way of saving or sparing Saul's life? The very person who was relentlessly pursuing him to kill him. When we put together what David did with what he says in verse 6, that's when we can begin to see why David thinks that he has gone too far in even cutting off a corner of his robe. David realized that by striking out at Saul's robe and cutting off some of it, he was actually rebelling against God. Why? Because David knew that Saul did not, was not, has not remained on the throne by accident, but by God's sovereign will. Although it would be hard for anybody in David's position to have complete respect for Saul. Anybody in here have great respect for Saul the person? I thought so. David obviously had great respect for the office that Saul held. And he actually saw the office of king of Israel. And this may be hard for us to understand with the king especially in a theocracy where God was the king, actually, and actually. He actually saw the office of the king of Israel as a manifestation of God's reign. So David's conviction was that it was God's responsibility to remove Saul. Whenever God saw fit, And as long as God allowed Saul to live and be in the king's office, this meant that to strike against the king was to strike out at God himself. This is so foreign to most of our thinking, especially in our day. Hardly anybody even considers these possibilities in these kind of situations or what it might mean. Really, do any of us have a clue? Is our view of God so holy and so overwhelming that this question would even enter our mind? This was David's strong conviction. And the king's robe was considered a physical extension of or a symbol of his 
sacred office. We've seen that in an interaction between Samuel and Saul earlier in this book. So why did David consider God's anointed to be untouchable and kept from attack and preserved? Because once anointed by the Lord, the anointed individual was set apart or consecrated to God. A specific bond was established in relation to God and in separation from men and women in general and from the common aspects of life altogether. So to touch, defile, and attack the anointed one was to approach the Lord himself and to seek to defile, harm, and remove the Lord from his rightful place. And this is true because God is king of Israel and God established this king when the people demanded it. But he is the one who put him there for his purposes that may still be beyond us. But the fact is he put him there and yes, he did anoint David as king. But there's this time going on between when Saul is actually physically removed from office and when David assumes the throne. And in the meantime here, the lessons that are learned as God prepares David for his reign are incredible and we can learn so much from it. But there is not a direct one-to-one correspondence between any of us and this king. I hope you get that. This is a special circumstance of God calling someone to be the king that in essence is his representative on earth. Now if you get all that, we can keep going. David agreed with his men that it was the Lord who placed Saul in the cave at their mercy. No doubt about that. They had a view of the sovereignty of God that was in much more line with all of Scripture than most of us. That's how they started their thinking. But the mere fact that God provided an opportunity does not guarantee that the Lord intends for us to exercise it. And that's where we go so far off. Oftentimes, like here, God tests his people to reveal the true state of their hearts. And this, I hope, is hitting close to home. Remember when Jonah found a ship in Joppa bound for a place in the opposite direction of where God told him to go? God was not facilitating Jonah's rebellion. He was rather testing Jonah's faithfulness. And God often tests us when we're considering an opportunity to sin. Why? In order to show the true condition of our hearts. To ourselves first, because we're so good at hiding everything under the rug and deceiving ourselves. 
but also to cause us to draw near to him then for strength and protection, to recognize it for what it is, and then to go to him instead of being so committed to go ahead and go through with it. Because we're looking for some sign from God that this is what he wants us to do, but we want to do it so bad that we know deep down inside we're really going to do it whether he says it or not. And that's a lot of what this is about. In other words, an open door is not in itself proof of God's will. There's got to be a book about this. We don't follow our hearts. Unless your heart is continually turned over to the Lord and you're asking for his guidance and you're willing to go whichever way he leads. Circumstances in God's providence are not a substitute for the principles that he has revealed in his word, the Bible. And much of evangelicalism today operates by this thing. The door opens. Our first question should be, what does this mean? It should make us go to the Lord more, not less unless we're immediately looking for an excuse to do something maybe we already know we shouldn't do. And I hope and pray that every person in here is letting the Lord work to make your conscience, which he gave each and every one of us, subject to him and his word first, instead of some of the weird things that we see going on in our culture, where it, it almost looks like there is no such thing as conscience anymore. But see, we can operate knowing that God has given everybody a conscience. So, oftentimes like here, God tests his people to reveal the true state of their hearts. That's so important to realize. So David must discern the difference in God's providence between temptation to sin in God's will. And his alarms are already going off. What gives him direction then? What allows him to make the right decisions ultimately here and to see what's really going on? Isn't that what we really all want to know? Well, here it's the sanctity of the Lord's anointed as we see in verse 6. This solves it for him, but he's got 600 men with him that are just drooling over the fact that the enemy is in the cave, indisposed, easy prey. Let's get rid of him now. No more trouble, no more hiding, no more fleeing. You can take the throne right now. It'll be yours. Do it. And anybody in here that thinks that is not a powerful, powerful influence upon David is absolutely crazy. And to overcome that influence is the same thing as having sin in your life and knowing, I'm it's here it comes again, the powerful influence of your friends 
or your family or your workplace and you think you're just you're just you can't do anything about it and here we see somebody the situation couldn't be any more perfect and yet david stands on what he knows is true about that god anointed Saul And don't forget that he has a habit pattern already of dealing with this issue. When he was called to serve in Saul's court, he served him. He had spears thrown at him. He only fled when it became apparent and everybody knew and was announced by Saul and orders were given to kill David. Then he fled. Most of us would not react like this. And this is not saying be like David. This is saying David is a great example of what Christ illustrated, which we will talk about in just a second. David knew that he had the promise of God to be the king of God's kingdom. But how the kingdom should come to him is an entirely different matter. In other words, God's will must be achieved in God's way. The end that God has ordered must be reached by the means that God approves. And we're talking about God's people here. We must as we see what God's will is, achieve, go after that in ways that God approves, which is what David's men just don't get yet. They think it's obvious what to do. Christ faced the same kind of test, did he not? Of course it was who knows how much we can't quantify it, greater the test was, as the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, this will be yours, you will have the glory, etc., etc., etc. Now get this, what the devil offered was the will of God for Jesus, but God's will must come to pass in God's way, in his time which meant no shortcuts for Jesus. No getting around the humiliation of the cross. And it, that's one of the neatest things, the most incredible studies you can ever do. Make yourself ask those questions as you read a gospel account to see what Jesus did, how he stayed on the path, how he did not go off after something that he could get sooner. He did what was necessary to make his sacrifice on the cross acceptable to God the Father, knowing that God's wrath for sin, yours and mine, would be thrown out to him. He'd never experience. And that's a whole lot to think about, isn't it? Is this kind of test confined to these great biblical heroes, characters in the Bible, 
Some of them aren't so great. Is it confined there, or do you and I face tests like this? All of us, see if we were in another place with another history and of worship, everybody in here was at amen to that one. Yeah, we know it. The temptation to take the shortcut is powerful and it is quite common for all of us. And here's how you can tell whether you kind of tend to be this way more than you know you should. We long to find a key. We long to find a major breakthrough. We long to get a decisive insight that will place our Christian living on some kind of higher plane where we can most always be without any hindrance, without any frustration, or any despair. Does this sound familiar? I guarantee you that 90% of most places that call themselves Christian bookstores are full with this message. Here's the key. Here's the 20 steps, the 10, the 3, the 4. Here's a prayer from an obscure person that's only less than one sentence in the Old Testament. Do this, and you can have and extend your realm. It's ridiculous how much of this stuff we buy into. Some Christians, a lot of Christians, claim they found this secret and they urge you to follow them. It's called the latest fad, the latest do it. Some places that call themselves churches, the only reason they exist is because they've got people who figure out what the new one's going to be to keep everybody interested. Because what you attract people with to make to get them to see that they're a part of the body or the church is what you've got to keep doing to keep them there. If it's Christ, then we hear a message like this and we're on our knees. And we look around and we thank God for every person that here that is a kindred spirit because they're in the body of Christ. For sure, we know it. We know their hearts, no matter how much ice cream they made tonight. It's a special, special identity. How we yearn for the shortcut around the arduous, wearying, time-consuming labor of sanctification. We want a shortcut, a sure thing to graduate from sanctification into glory. And we don't want God's timing. We don't want to wait. We want it now. And we must be trained and taught that it almost never happens. Now, it's a process. And God's in charge of how fast that process goes, and how slow, and where it, what the stages are in your own life and in your own church. We need great discernment here, do we not? You know, we spent enough time in Hebrews. We need to hear this again. Let me read from one part that you'll immediately recognize. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking at Jesus, the founder and perfecter of all our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Same message all the way through the Bible. But we tend to not want to hear it. So one of the things that we need to do as a body of believers it is encourage each other in this walk in which we endure and enjoy the many, many blessings that we have doing that together. I wonder whether Paul wrote Philippians 1, 9 and 10 precisely to get across this very thing. There we read, And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all what? Discernment. Means depth of insight. So that you may approve what is excellent. We need to know the Lord in such a way that we develop discernment. So David's task now is to quell the storm coming from his own men in that cave. How would you like that job? Where Saul is still alive and well, And David must do this on the basis of his conviction, which demonstrates great insight and understanding about who God is and his trust that this God he knows is the one true God whom he reverences 
and here's the key, and respects above all. So we get to verse 6 and 7. See what your Bible says. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And you're going, whoa, he must be a really good orator. Well, the English translations, almost every one of them from what I saw, don't come close to getting this verb right in verse 7. Persuaded sounds lame compared to what this word is. So David persuaded his men. Yeah, that, that was the end result, but it doesn't capture the Hebrew that is so in-your-face earthy with ways to say things by using examples of what people actually do. You know what this is? Literally, this says, So David tore apart his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. Does that sound a little different to you? That's because it is different. See, we, a lot of translators get into this situation. And they go, oh, he couldn't have gotten mad or he, he couldn't have been forceful here. Oh, yeah? That's exactly what this means. He ripped these guys apart. There was 600 of them. They were all in a cave. They were, he's one guy. They're Saul. This suggests that David had to violently and threaten, had to resort to violent and threatening language to cool off his men's blood. Because this word means to render something apart, especially material. It's like tearing a robe. It's, it's violent. It's like, just rip it. That's the picture. To cut them down with his words in order to prevent the shedding of Saul's blood. And he did it. He stood up before his 600 men. And with this kind of conviction, he let them have it about what was true about God and leave him alone. And I bet you every one of those guys never forgot that. Especially when Saul was killed in a battle with another enemy not too far down the road now. Can you see him? We heard. Wow. God did take care of him. You can imagine how many were going, oh, man. Why are we out here? Why are we starving to death? Why are we being chased by six or however many it was? What was it, three? 3,000. They're right outside the cave. This is our chance. So David's understanding and his wisdom and strong conviction God used in his power through the truth spoken to them did win in this crisis. 
That's an incredible thing, I think. Do not underestimate how easy it would have been to justify killing Saul right here. Because the more we see this clearly, the more we understand how David took the anointing of God upon Saul and he understood it so well that he he didn't justify anything that he wanted to do. Saul's crimes were many, were they not? Can you list some of them? The most obvious one would be the massacre of the God's priests at the city of Nob. But there was so many more. And you know what? The removal of Saul might need to a national restoration of Israel to the Lord. Can't you just hear all this? The committee that's going to talk to the men. No, this was all going on right in front of everybody. But the leaders, they listen. And since David was anointed by God for the kingship, he might be acting within his own rights, as his own men believed. A lot of times when we as human beings get in these situations, we, we start off right. We get counsel from different people, but then we do not pray about that counsel. We do not go to God willing to go either way with the counsel. We depend on somebody we trust. We want to hear this person. We hear that. That's good most of the time. But what good is it if the people you're talking to and get counsel from are also on their knees before God Almighty? It's going to be trouble. And a lot of us have lived through that kind of stuff firsthand. And it's not pretty. How many Christians today would give in to arguments like that, you think? Justifying sinful or unbiblical means, ways, with the godly ends that they are pursuing, reasoning that results are all that really matter. David seems to have realized how very crucial this circumstance was for his life, didn't he? He knew he would reign. But what he did right now in this cave would determine how he would reign and what kind of kingdom his leadership would produce. Can I say that again? This is really, really important. He knew he would reign. He had a promise from God that he was anointed as the next king. But what he did right now in this cave in this opportunity that seemed to be God just delivering Saul to him, what he did would determine how he would reign and what kind of kingdom his leadership would produce. It would have repercussions that would go on for the whole time that he was on the earth. And how many people would this decision influence? If it had those kind of implications about him, Since he was going to be the next king, it has implications that would affect all of his people. And we forget about that. Fathers, do you feel this burden? 
Your decisions and how you take things before God affects who? Your family. And the repercussions just keep coming and coming and coming and coming and coming. This is so important for all of us to get. But we see something else here that is so, so vital. We see the incredible power of God's word to govern David's passions and to restrain them from erupting into violence and sin. David displays here a self-control over intense pressure. just sounds lame to me, but that's the only thing that can really describe it. David displays here a self-control over intense pressure that is practically impossible for any other kind of man. How many noble hearts have failed under lesser circumstances? And I bet you each and every one of us has a list. Times in your life where you were affected some, by somebody who didn't pass this test in leadership somewhere in some area, and usually a bunch of different areas. It affects you. What power restrained David's hand? How would you describe this? If your little kid comes up and says, yeah, I read this story. First of all, after they quit giggling about the circumstances, is that really me? Yeah, okay. Okay, but let's get beyond it. No, they keep going back to it. Get in beyond it. What is really going on? It's the weight, the weight, the sheer weight of God's word with the accompaniment of God's Holy Spirit attending his word that didn't let David's conscience alone. He knew himself well enough to know that when his conscience was going off like this, for that reason that was based on the truth of God's own word, that he better do something about it. William Blakely writes this, to govern the will by a reverence for God is sure proof of a heart trained by frequent consultation of God's word. That is so true. This is a great quote. To govern the will by a reverence for God is sure proof of a heart trained by frequent consultation of God's word. Verse 7, Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Didn't know anything yet. That's what the rest of the chapter is about. And it is amazing. Lord willing, we'll get there next week. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God. We as your people gladly come before you 
and confess that so often you and your word are rationalized in our sinful hearts so that we can do what we want to do and accomplish what we want to accomplish no matter what we know you and your, you say through your word. And we confess that is sin. If we call you Lord, we know that that means we bow to you first, no matter what direction, what we're thinking, what the issues or the circumstances are. And God, we know that we can do that by your grace in Christ because we are growing in our knowledge of you by your grace as we learn you about you and your word, how you work and what our hearts truly are made of. We know that you've changed us and made us open to your direction and desiring you and we pray that you would work in this life to do whatever you need to do to get us where you need us to be and that along the way we don't have to live in fear that we can trust that you know exactly what you're doing with us. Who else can we trust but you, oh God? Who else knows all? Who else has us wrapped up and kept forever and ever? Who else understands our pain, the circumstances, no one else could save us, but you sent your son to do just that. What a great love. We don't need to ask you to prove your love to us. You proved it in Christ. And you continue to prove it and encourage us as we walk. Oh God, we pray that we would hunger and thirst after you and your word. that we would grow then in our love for one another as we appreciate what you've done for us so that we can reach out to those who do not know you and care and proclaim the truth. And we pray that we can encourage one another in these, in these truths. Equip us to accomplish your will here in Amarillo Canyon Panhandle. It's in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our, our benediction? Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed. Hope to see you this evening. <laughs>